It is not about you. Sounds like an insult, I know. But trust me, it's good news. Uh, Spring day, um, one of my children was crying, looking absolutely miserable. And I asked her, what was wrong? And she responded with uh, what only a toddler could say with a straight face. I am not having a good Mother's Day. (laughs) She's feeling bad, and she realizes that it's supposed to be a special day, a day of celebration. But the thing that didn't sink home was, it was not about her. I say that in the context of the story of David and Goliath for good reason. However popular it is, we constantly misread this story. And in doing so, we miss its powerful message. We make the mistake of believing that this story is all about us. We are David. Goliath is all of our problems. And now it's your turn, Pastor, to tell us how to get those stones to overcome all of these things that annoy us, that threaten us. Uh, If that's what you're expecting, I am going to disappoint you. (laughs) But that is not just a bad interpretation of this passage. It really misses the wonderful news that's offered here. There is good news, good news that goes beyond the problems that we see right in front of our nose. There's something more important and more vital that God is at work doing. And it's not disconnected from us, even though it's not about us, for it is good news for you. And so with that, let's turn to this passage again with fresh eyes, and let's do so asking God to bless our time. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word, and we do pray that you'll open our eyes to see what you have for us here, and open our hearts to receive it and to live it out and, uh, throughout the week, so that you might receive all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we are doing something new, um, that, something that I think is going to be helpful with your engagement with the, the message. We're offering a text number that you can text questions or comments uh, for and know that you will get a response from the preacher um, within at least three days, um, but also can help serve as some of the questions that we'll engage with downstairs during a sermon discussion we have after the service. So the um, text number is in your bulletin, I trust, somewhere by the sermon, page 10. Nope, not there. Anybody? On the screen, if you have the gift of great eyesight, you'll be able to see that the number 203-800-7689 is the number for texting and engaging. If not, um, talk to somebody after the service that uh, is up here and we can get you that number. Um, But the story, to understand it properly like any, the basis of any good interpretation, 
must begin with understanding the context. And as we've been in this series of 1 Samuel for uh, months now, over and over we, get, we see that the, the message that the book is trying to convey to us is this theme that we must walk by faith and not by sight. And that has been uh, seen with these key figures that have come up that have, have sort of starred in the drama. We began with Hannah, poor barren Hannah, who looked to the Lord when everything else in her life seemed to be telling her there was no earthly hope for her. And then it transitioned to her son Samuel, who was fighting the powers of the world, the ones that were against her, the institutions that seemed to to give uh, Samuel no power at all. And he also turned to the Lord. And then recently we've seen Saul, a negative example of one who didn't turn to the Lord as much as turned to the world and the way the world operated. Look to that power for salvation with disappointing results. And now our passage in this book focuses on David. And David, again, the epitome of one who walks by faith. And that really is the message as we need to uh, dig into this passage, of one so familiar. And let's not be caught off guard by seeing, um, or, or caught unaware of seeing the beauty that's in this passage. Dramatically, chapter 17 begins, two big mountains, one on either side, with a valley in between. In this corner stands, David, or stands Saul and Israel and their armies. And in the other corner stands Goliath and the Philistines. The Philistines are not strangers to this story. They have been the arch enemy of Israel throughout this book and will continue to plague them. And it's not an equal. Now, however much you see two mountains here, these are not equal armies. The Philistines are the much greater, more powerful superpower. And it seems as only a matter of time before they crush Israel. And yet, they offer a deal. They put forward Goliath. He was to fight for them as their representative. Perhaps they wanted to avoid a bloody uh, combat with all the, the two armies together. Perhaps they just wanted to get things over with quickly. But Goliath stands for the entire Philistine army. Now this way of solving warfare was not really common in the ancient world. Um, but it wasn't unheard of at all. But the point that we could miss here is that dramatically, Goliath represents how we should view the Philistines. It wasn't that this was their secret weapon on a weaker army. They could have destroyed Israel hands down on their own. But everything great about Goliath was what we should read and understand about the Philistines. And Goliath was huge. The text says that he was six cubits and a span. Now, a cubit is about 18 inches. It's supposed to be from the elbow to the fingertips. Uh, and then a span is uh, nine inches between the, the span of the hand. Uh, not sure if those measurements are quite accurate, but uh, that would make Goliath nine foot nine. Now, there is good reason to 
um, take the Septuagint's reading, which says four cubits, um, because uh, the way the Hebrew is, it, it could be a natural um, error in the text that it was actually uh, four cubits rather than six, which would still make uh, Goliath a giant of the time, six foot nine, when the average height was about five five or five four. Goliath was towering over the average person. Everything about Goliath suggests strength and power. Everything about David suggests youth and an experience. Goliath is huge. David is young and perhaps tiny. Now, kids, you know this story, right? Can I ask you to draw these two fighters? Draw Goliath. Make him as big as your page is going to let you make him. And then draw David. And the story gives you some more details in here. It says that Goliath had this really big helmet of bronze on. I don't know how you can draw bronze, but just a really big helmet. He had a, a, a shirt of mail, which, uh, don't draw a letter there. The, the shirt of mail is like armor, but like chains, or in this case, scales. So you can draw scales maybe on his body, like a fish. And then he had armor on his legs. And he was carrying a spear and a javelin. And the tip of the spear is to be, I think, 15 or 16 pounds. So a really big tip on that spear. David doesn't have any armor at all. He's got no sword. All he has is a sling and five smooth stones. He'll just use one of them. But I want you to draw that picture. And if you look at that picture, it should be no contest. Goliath is going to win easily. And if that was all that there was on your page, it should be a complete mismatch. I don't know if, you've, if anybody has seen the YouTube videos of little kids, uh, kids about eight or nine years old, playing basketball at like a charity event or halftime show and they go up against real NBA players, and it's really cute. The, the kids dribble along all starry-eyed, and they, then they go up to shoot, and, uh, and then out of nowhere, the NBA player swats the shot 12 rows into the stands. I shouldn't laugh, um, but there's, there's a bunch of them out there. Go look at them. Be sympathetic to the poor little kids. Uh, but they're having a blast. But that's the mismatch here. That's the mismatch. An eight-year-old going up against LeBron James, Kevin Durant, player X who is massive and skilled. The odds are no different. So kids, in that picture, what would you draw, what would you give to David to help him win this battle? What could you give him? What do you think evens it out or perhaps gives David the advantage? Because it is a mismatch. Now when Israel saw Goliath, when they pictured this, with, when Saul was in charge in verse 11, it says that they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They have no plan. Goliath knows it. And Goliath starts the trash talking. 
mercilessly mocking Israel. And then in verse 32, David, little David, comes on the scene. And his approach is really different than anybody else in Israel. In fact, he's not afraid. He's strangely confident. He believes that he is going to win. Well, what's the difference? What's the difference between confident David and fearful Saul? Now, I want to challenge the notion, as I've said, that this story is really about us. And there are three mistakes that I think that we commonly make to get to this conclusion. The first one, and what I want to look at first here, is that we need to rethink the nature of this battle. We need to rethink the nature of this battle. The battle is not about how we can overcome our obstacles. That's a typical reading. I did a quick search to see how this, this metaphor, uh, this illustration of this, this battle has been used just in the headlines in the last few weeks and months. The one from the business world. Like David and Goliath, small companies can beat the big corporations by being innovative and disruptive. Another one um, from the world of marketing, telling us to follow the example of this story and we too can do well. David beat Goliath with, here you go, it's maybe you had to read a little closer in your text for this, beat Goliath with intelligence, resource management, and superior decision-making. Please don't write these down. <laughs> Follow that path, too, and you can win at life. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, who loves to put spins on uh, familiar stories, if you are a fan of his, um, he writes a provocative book called David and Goliath. Now, uh, all of his books are provocative. Um, but he argues that in reality, David is not an underdog. He, he says that his slingshot could have been like the power of a gun. And in that respect, David had already outmatched Goliath. And it wasn't surprising to anyone who watched this that, that David, the agile slinger, would have defeated Goliath because slingers always beat infantrymen, hands down. And he goes on to argue that Goliath was actually at a disadvantage because he suffered with gigantism, which probably made the, a tumor in his brain or a growth in his brain give him poor eyesight. So he, he, and he had to have a, a guy in front of him carrying his shield because he was unable to get there. That is like the silliest interpretation of this passage I've ever heard. This story falls apart if we were to think that David actually was the superior fighter here. Now, the point of the story is not about warfare. It's not about how to fight a battle or how to win in your battles. It's about understanding the nature of this battle. To really understand this story, we have to see it as a story less about David versus Goliath and more a comparison between David and Saul. That's the point of the story as it's framed throughout this narrative. Saul looks at the Philistine army and he trembles. He sees the battle of Goliath as hopeless. As he walks by sight, 
Saul should have learned the lesson in his own experience that you don't rely on height. Size does not matter in the kingdom of God. That's the reason why he was elected and the reason why when he depended on that, he failed. He is convinced that Israel is the great underdog here. David walks by faith. He sees this battle as a complete mismatch. But a mismatch going the other way. Goliath doesn't stand a chance. The Philistines are going to fail. The difference is faith. The nature of this battle is not uh, about warfare. It's a battle between faith versus sight. What is faith? What is faith? We heard the Bible's definition of faith there in, in Hebrews 11, chapter, one, or chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, we fall into the trap all the time when we hear definitions like that, and I think wrongly understand faith in very secular terms, as some sort of internal quality that we can possess. We see someone who has a lot of faith and we say, oh, I wish I had faith like that person. Or we we look at somebody overcoming an obstacle and we admire the faith that they can express. But that's not what faith is. Faith is not an attribute or a skill. Faith is not like being good at math or, or having natural singing ability. It reminds me of the time when I was a kid and I tried to learn how to whistle. I can whistle now, but for a long time, it just was a mystery to me. All these other people were whistling, and I'm just, ooh, ooh, you know. It's like you're actually not doing anything helpful, but you're trying to approximate the noise that it makes. And a lot of times we feel like faith is like that. It's some skill that's, that's enigmatic. It's mysterious. How do I get it? Where's the on-ramp to it? And when we view faith like that, I think we read this passage and we're a lot more sympathetic towards Saul. Poor Saul, he's like me, just struggling. How do you get this, this weird thing called faith? As if it's just confidence in that things will work out. The ability to make a blind leap when my brain tells me not to leap at all. Others view faith as naive being naive or being optimistic, blind trust. In this, I I side with the skeptics who raise an eyebrow whenever they see a Christian who just says, I believe God will work all things out and it'll be fine. Or give some platitude when you're going through a difficult time. Say, you know what? Your problem is you just need more faith. Faith is not equivalent to being optimistic. And there are a lot of great things about being a positive person. Uh, and I like being around positive people. But being a positive person is not equal to being a Christian. But also, faith stands against being a pessimist. The great missionary Leslie Newbegin once put it like this, and I think it's really instructive. He said, I am not an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. You get that? I am not an optimist nor a pessimist. 
Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. What is he pointing at here? What he's getting at is essential for Christian faith. What matters in faith is not us. It's not some internal quality that we can have in ourselves. The thing about faith is it's external. What he was getting at is to understand Christian faith. We have to understand that it is a turn completely outward. It rests completely on the object of your faith. I quoted that Hebrews 11, which says, a faith is the assurance of the things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. One, I think, really accurate translation that a scholar gave puts it this way, faith celebrates the objective reality for which we hope. I think that's Hebrews 11. Faith celebrates the objective reality for which we hope. What separates David from Saul? What separates David from Saul? Saul sees himself alone. And that this problem is out there threatening him and what he wants to achieve. He sees his life with only his resources. David does not look internally. David looks externally. David doesn't look at himself. He looks at God. But he doesn't simply just look at God as God. Not just, okay, I have a reality where this supreme being is in the world. You know, it does no good to say, yes, God is greater than all things, and then things will work out for us. Where do we get so presumptuous to think that even if he is greater than all things and at work, that he would actually do anything for us? Well, see, David bases his faith not just on the mere fact that there could exist a God out there that's a supreme being. No, he gets more specific and says, there is a God and a God who has made covenant promises to me, to us as a nation. He bases his faith not on his own confidence, not on his ability to beat lions and bears. You know, there's a part of that narrative that almost thinks he's going that way. And I think verses 34 and 35, he talks about himself being the deliverer from that. But then very quickly he says, but it was God who delivered me from those animals. That's the point. He's putting his weight on the covenant promises that God has given him. We can see evidence of this. David is the first in this whole story to use the name of God as God identifies himself in the covenant. The name Yahweh, which in your translation is capital L-O-R-D. That stands for the, the name that God uses when it's referring to the covenant he's made with his people. And David is drawing on that because he bases his confidence solely on this covenant. The second quality is that when he looks at Goliath, he calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. And we're thinking, you know what? That's not a really great insult, David. Your trash talking could work. Work on it a little bit. Uncircumcised Philistine, you know, I don't know how much that really bothered him. What's David doing here? He's not simply trash talking. 
He is making a claim. Circumcision was a covenant identifying marker. It was a sign of the promise that God has made His people. He's saying, I've got circumcision, so that means all the promises that God has given are for me. You, Goliath, are are outside of that. God promised this land to us. It's the promised land. And you, Philistines, you uncircumcised people, you're occupying space reserved for God and His people. And God is not going to let you win. Based not on me and my strength, not the size of our army, but based on God and His promises. Goliath arrogantly boasts, blaspheming God's name, threatening God's kingdom. David cannot envision a world where God is not going to mop the floor with this guy. Based not just on confidence that God is big or optimism, but based on the promises that God specifically made with his people. We don't base our confidence on just a hope or even just on a belief in God, but on the promises he's made to us, his people. Kids, what did you draw? What did you draw? What did you give to David? You can give him a weapon, right? Of course, Goliath could probably go get another weapon. Did you give him some vehicle, a tank, or a plane? Philistine army's still big. Well, you could give him, I don't know how you draw this, but a piece of paper or a tablet that just had God's promises on it. That's the world David was living in. He had God's promises, and it was certain victory. So that is the mismatch. It's what God gave David, the certain promises. So this is the first point. The nature of this battle is faith versus sight. It's a call to face all of our lives, not on secular terms, not as if we're alone fighting these battles, but drawing on a world that, that where God lives, where God is good to his word and his specific promises to his people. It frames all of our lives. This is David's vision. He sees the context as a context where God's word is true. Something that Saul denies, not so much with his mouth, but with all of his actions. Living as if God never made a promise. Living a secular life. This leads to the second mistake that we often make when we read this passage, and that's identifying Goliath with our problems. Goliath does not represent the things that frustrate you. And I know that it's just so enticing to read the story that way. Think right now about the things that stand in your way. What are your obstacles? What is it that if they were just taken care of in life, you would be happy? Is it financial? Maybe you're under the stress of a lot of debt. Perhaps you're seeing a world where if you just made as much as your neighbor or just made as much as would get you the life you really want, that you will be happy. Maybe it's physical pain or illness things you feel are holding you back, that if it was just solved, if just that thing was overcome, life would be good. 
Perhaps it's the stress of work piling up, and the piles always get bigger, they never get smaller. And your obstacle is your time and your energy. If you only had a few more hours in the day, if only you could not sleep ever and not need it, and you could just work around the clock. I said this week, if only there's a month between August and September, my life would be good. Is that the obstacle? What is it for you? What is it that you see day in, day out that keeps you up at night, that says, man, this is my Goliath, this is the thing standing in my face? Wouldn't it be great if I just learned the story of David and I found the key to overcoming that thing and destroying it? No. Goliath doesn't represent your problems. There are no promises that we can draw on from God that says that he's going to take care of all of the things that you face this week. But hear this. That is the best news I could possibly give you. You are not the center of the story. You're not the center of the world's story, of your life's story. When we read this story, Goliath represents everything that stands in opposition to God. Goliath stands in opposition, not to David, but to the kingdom of God. Which means that Goliath deserves to be punished. Which means that Goliath is no threat because the kingdom of God is not going to have anybody challenge it. It is going to overcome and destroy. Goliath represents everything that stands in opposition to God and his kingdom. Did you notice how in this chapter, Goliath is pictured. The imagery used to describe Goliath was almost like an animal or a beast. Pay attention. Read through the passage again. You'll notice here and there it comes up. First, when David faces him, he compares him to the animals that he faced. Just like I killed the lion and the bear, verse 43, so I'm going to kill this guy. But the imagery is almost as if Goliath himself is a beast. Um, sorry, verse 43 says, uh, come, uh, David approaching Goliath, and Goliath scoffs. Goliath's words are, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Goliath calls himself a beast. And see, the importance of this is that that's biblical imagery. And whenever you read the Bible, Beasts are symbols of wicked forces that oppose the kingdom of God. You might remember the book of Daniel, and as Daniel has these horrific dreams, it is the imagery of beasts coming and opposing God's kingdom that, uh, that keep David up at night and that he dreams of. The book of Revelation uses that same imagery of beasts coming against the people of God. What's behind that? It all comes back to Genesis 1 where God has, in creation, set up the proper order for all of creation where it's God at the top, humanity uh, under that as vice kings, obedient to God, but given what? Given dominion over the beasts of the field. That's important uh, order there. Hierarchy. 
Now, at the fall, what happens? When sin enters the world, what happens? It's the beast, it's the serpent that comes and commands the man, who is under the beast now, to be over God and to take the seat of God. It's a complete reversal of the order of creation. Just to reinforce this point, if we go back and look at at Goliath's armor, it's described in verse 5 in and the Hebrew word used for that coat of mail is actually scales. We were at Grad Pro uh, Group a couple weeks ago. We, we all went to the Renaissance Fair. Um, I had never been to a Renaissance Fair. It's insane. In a good way. You walk into this and you enter a completely different world. The food, the language people use, the clothing... Um, there's contests where knights in real armor are fighting each other. Um, I, I looked at some of the costumes that they had there, and there was a, a chain mail that was very much like what was described here, where instead of links, you had scales. And if you just stood back, you got the image when you looked at this of a giant dragon, or a serpent. And that's the imagery Goliath is, is, uh, is pictured at here. Dressed like a giant serpent, standing there in opposition to the kingdom of God. Now here's the thing. If you're looking at this story as ways to deal with your problem, you're looking at it as, as ways to address your obstacles, then you're looking at this story just like Saul looked at this story. From Saul's perspective, God is the th- or Goliath is the very thing that's keeping him from having a successful reign. Goliath is the very thing that's opposing his plans for a peaceful Israel. His plans for success and prosperity in the land. Goliath stands opposed to him. If you are looking for solutions to get your way, if you're looking for ways to overcome your obstacles, then I'm sorry to tell you that according to this story, that doesn't make you David. That makes you Goliath. Could it be that you and your plans are the very thing that stands in the way of the kingdom of God? Could it be that the things keeping you up at night, frustrating you, that that's actually not your biggest enemy? Could it be that the desire you have to get your way and what you want is actually the thing that's keeping you from God, that's pitting you against him? God is up to far greater things and a far greater enemy. Do you stand in opposition to what he is trying to do You're frustrated because he doesn't seem to be answering your prayers. He doesn't seem to be addressing the things that you want addressed. Perhaps it is because he's not fighting the war that you want him to fight. But is your battle getting in the way? God God never promises to make us prosper. His role is not the role of best supporting actor. And that's the best news possible because he is fighting things at a deeper level. 
God's plan is to rescue us from the toxic kingdom of our own devices. His kingdom is to deliver his people. That's the word that gets used over and over in this text, deliver. And that brings us to this third and final point. It's good news that you do not fill the David role in this story. That role is reserved. That role is reserved for great David's greater son. It's Jesus. Jesus is our chosen champion. He is our representative put forward to fight the battle as we're cowering in the corner. It's Jesus who does battle with the real enemies of sin and death. It's Jesus who takes on evil and destroys it. Just as David nails the serpent-like Goliath in the head with the rock, so it's Jesus who crushes the head of the serpent. The call in this story is to live in light of this victory. Live in light of the victory of the kingdom of God that continues to march forward, destroying all of its enemies. Get on His side. Join His force, His kingdom. And then all the promises that He makes are promises for you. The life of faith is living as this is reality. To walk not by sight, but walk by the objective work of Christ. It's not about you, but it's for you. We're called not to win the victory, but to join the side of Christ who has secured and given full assurance of God's love and mercy. Full assurance of a future for us far greater than what we think can be accomplished by the removal of our obstacles. That's the hope. That's real hope. so that we can join with Paul in Romans 8, who says, point blank, who can stand against us? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Who can separate us from the love of God? Who will condemn us? And then Paul goes on to this riff of all the things that we think are going to be our enemies. And he includes everything. War, distress, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death. And we're like, well, that's a pretty big list, Paul. I'm I'm scared of that list. To which he says, no, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When we align ourselves with Christ, our enemies become puny. The opposition to the kingdom of God overtakes them. The question for us is, what's our response to this victory? This is where faith comes in. Maybe you're here trying to figure out what faith is. You you always wanted to have faith. You've put yourself around Christians, and maybe you're sitting here hoping that it's going to kick in. You'll get that feeling that you want from everybody else. And if that's you, let's talk. Let's talk about what it means to have faith. Because however much it feels like you're in a neutral position, The promise is out there for you. And you're either accepting it or you're turning away from it. The promise stands out there. You receive it by faith because it's external from you. 
Let's talk. Maybe you're a Christian, but you're unable to see the kingdom of God. All you see is what you can see with your eyes. You're living by sight. You see your resources. You see your limitations. You see your obstacles. You live in exhaustion and fear. You are lonely because you feel like you're battling your war by yourself. And you can't see God at all. And perhaps that's the point. Perhaps the reason you don't see God is that you're fighting the wrong battle. You can't see his work because he isn't working for the same goals as you. It's an invitation to turn from a self-focused kingdom and see with eyes of faith God is winning a victory over your real enemies. And the things that you call enemies, maybe they are actually things that God is trying to work in your life to draw you back to him, to get you to surrender to him. The invitation is for you. Walk in light of the promises that God has for you. Keep your eye on the kingdom that is ahead, that is a far richer blessing than any world where your enemies don't exist. That invitation stands. Will you receive it? It's received by faith. We receive that as we walk in this community and we'll express it and celebrate it at this table. Let's pray.